To conclude his distinguished career, legendary Australian herbalist Dennis Stewart will present his final course, a professional extension in herbal medicine. Commencing on the 23rd of November 2019, this 12-day intensive course will be held over a period of 12 months on the New South Wales Central Coast. This will be your last opportunity to participate in detailed learning with Dennis, covering relevant, effective herbal prescriptions to treat an expansive range of conditions. For more information and to register, please go to lakespa.com.au. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Justin Sinclair, who's a research fellow at the National Institute for Complementary Medicine, that's NICM, and also the coordinator of the Australian Medicinal Cannabis Research and Education Collaboration. As well as that, he's served on the United in Compassion's Scientific Advisory Board. His background is pharmacognosy, and he's published on the topics of cannabis and the endocannabinoid system pain management and herb-drug interactions. Welcome to FX Medicine, Justin. How are you? I'm doing well, Andrew. Thanks very much, mate. Today we're going to be talking about our directions in herbal medicine, where we've come from and where we're going. So let's start. (laughs) Sounds great. Now you've, I mean, you, how was the difference studying with a naturally natural medicine aligned college and moving to a university faculty of pharmacy. Oh, look, it was uh, it was worlds apart, and I think that uh, when I when I did my my first degree, the the Bachelor of Health Science um, that we did uh, with University of New England, whilst doing all of the diploma level studies with ACMT, I think it was about two thousand that the the first book that Kerry Bone put out, the Principles and Practice of Phytotherapy. Yep. That came out, and it and it really kind of revolutionised the way that uh, herbal medicine was being looked at because some of the textbooks that we were using up until that point were things like you know Dorothy Hall and and this uh, is Greaves, you know, it, yeah, Greaves and and the, and the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia of 1983, and and so all of that was basically just very very strong focus on our traditional uh, understanding and usage of the plant, and there wasn't a great deal of science uh, put in there at all, and then suddenly. You know, uh, Kerry's book comes out, um, and all of us were uh, clamoring for that kind of information and, and really jumped headfirst into it and, and loved every bit of it. And I think that started a, um, I don't know, it's, it's, uh, it's almost to a degree a little bit of an exodus, particularly in uh, the university sector and, and the, the, the bachelor sector away from our traditional roots, as we call them, uh, and philosophy. And much more focus on the uh, evidence-based medicine, uh, and 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 very very strong, obviously, focus uh, at the moment on bioscience and the and the health science modalities. And I think that it's a uh, it's it's wonderful that we've been doing that. I mean, I, I love science, uh, as, as I'm sure everyone knows, but I think that we we actually need to be careful uh, and, as a profession, have some meaningful discussion around the idea that. Uh, are we losing our identity uh, in in trying to keep up with uh, evidence base and and uh, 
why can't we actually look at uh, incorporating the two? And that's something that I, I, mm. I think is really important because particularly when I start seeing a couple of uh, you know, fourth-year students and, and having discussions with them in, in clinical classes and you start talking about things like the vital force or the therapeutic orders and they kind of look at you like you're uh, uh, a little bit crazy. And I think that that's, uh, that's something that we need to address. So let's explain those. Vital force. I mean, you know, to me, it seems like an obvious term, but then there's a, a more powerful sort of underlying tone there, if you like, about the the sparkle in the in the eye of that patient. Mm, yeah, the vitality. I mean, it's an interesting one, isn't it? And I think you can get ten different naturopaths or herbalists and, and ask them what that means, and you'll you'll obviously get ten different uh, renditions of what that meaning might be. But I think vital force um, or the vis. Uh, as, as uh, a lot of our American colleagues call it, you know that the healing power of nature and and vitality uh, are absolutely hand in hand with what we do, and we can't separate, uh, you know, being a herbalist or naturopath uh, and leave those terms out of it because this is the big thing where we were you know, kind of talking and touching on a little bit earlier is that we're starting to get away uh, from from treating human beings and yes. we're actually uh, focusing on on uh, disease and pathology and. And you know, science, uh, scientific uh, tests to be able to examine and, and get right down into the nitty gritty of understanding how that particular disease might be presenting in that patient. But we're forgetting that there's a human being attached to that. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and this is something that I think is probably going to let a lot of uh, newer grads down uh, because the science will fail them. Um, it's failed me numerous times. And if you don't have that tradition to fall back on. Uh, then that's something that you know we could be setting ourselves up for. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of generations that that are that are missing uh, that that uh, connectivity back to our uh, traditional roots and philosophies, and and therefore actually not being maybe as well rounded a practitioner as they could be. This is the thing that worries me is when you're trying to when I look at research papers, mm-hmm. trying to uh, find out if a nutrient will act in a drug-like manner, you are bound to be sorely disappointed with few exceptions. There are a few. But, um, you know, a few spring to mind, for instance, and, and I'll give you a couple just off the top of my head that I haven't got authors or anything, but I do remember a paper saying that St. John's wort could cause an infertility because... It, co- it, was, it caused infertility in hamster ovum when you injected it into the ovum. Yeah, now that's exactly the way we administer it. Now, yeah. <laughs> now, I mean, two things there. One, what a ludicrous mode of, of administration. Two, why didn't they do uh, paracetamol as a comparator there? I, I just don't get this unfairness. Well, I think, you know, that, that's an interesting one too. I mean, when we start looking at uh, a lot of the criticism that, uh, traditional medicine. I must admit, me personally, I, I try and get away from the terms complementary and alternative medicine. Mm. Uh, I, I find them complementary uh, to a degree, to me at least, suggest that we can't stand on our own two feet. Uh, and alternative, of course, you know, immediately makes you think of um, you know wearing some type of black leather and attending uh, some type of weird alternative rock concert. And, and I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't necessarily think that either of these are. Um, where you know what I believe in anyway. I I, t- I talk about modern medicine. I talk about traditional medicine, and that's generally the way I like to put it because that's actually 
the way that the Therapeutic Goods Administration talks about it as well is right. you know traditional evidence and science and, and scientific evidence. Uh, the World Health Organization talks about it uh, in a very similar role as well. And so I think that that you know your examples of us trying to get evidence base where we're utilizing all of the current science and and you know everything from your RCTs and doing systematic reviews and I think that's fantastic because, of course, that's going to raise our uh, profile. We're going to get uh, have ease uh, with communication with other healthcare professionals, particularly the medicos. Um, and I think that that's largely been one of the driving motivations for why we've been doing that. But that being said, I've talked to you before. I know where I've said that um, I don't think that all scientific studies are appropriate for herbal medicines, and I don't think that... Um, you know, keep you, you, you kind of miss the forest for the tree sometimes looking at some of yeah. those studies. And personally, I feel that the the, the randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled study is kind of reaching, I won't say the end, but I, I'll definitely say it started, its usefulness is starting to be questioned um, by a lot of scientists around the world. And I, for one, uh, you know, support the kind of in-clinic uh, N of 1 study uh, as being something that I think is far more useful for us as a profession to start getting information because this is not information then that we can accrue that's just about a herbal medicine or a nutrient therapy. This is actually information that uh, intertwines with our mode of practice. And that's something that the NHMRC and a lot of other bodies have actually been critical of traditional medicines is that, yes, you've got evidence to show that your St. John's works you know, in, in randomized uh, clinical studies, but that doesn't actually validate what you do. Mm, um, right. and, and I think that that's something that we need to pay far more attention to. And by doing so, we have to incorporate our traditional therapies and philosophies and uh, understanding of vital force and all of that uh, in that discussion and, and get away from the treatment of disease, treat the person, so that we can actually show that there is... Um, you know, therapeutic outcome by seeing a naturopath, not by just taking what they give you. Mm. Um, and that's where we need to separate these things these, these, and draw a line because um, we're going we're, we're gonna to lose our identity if we don't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's something that worries me. Yeah. Um, uh, certainly, I think there's a bit of grey in that, uh, you know, I certainly don't have issue with when somebody can't or won't take a pharmaceutical medicine for a particular condition that, you know, there might be certain options that have been validated by decent research, St. John's Water, as you talk about. Yeah. But my issue is that you're just substituting one pill for another. Um, whereas I spoke to Helen Patteron on a podcast and she was very strong in saying that we should be treating the person and it just so happens that the condition that has been diagnosed by orthodox medicine gets better. Now, you might sway that treatment towards supporting that sort of um, you know, organ or tissue that has been out of whack, but in general, you are treating the person and making them healthy. And the, the um, analogy that she used is that just like you, you cannot be just a little bit pregnant um, you, you tend to be just not just, uh, have one sort of disease. And when you get well, your whole body gets well, not just that condition. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think that all stems back to what Hippocrates used to say. I mean, he says, I'm far more interested in the, um, type of person that has a disease than the, than the you know, the, the disease that the person has. Mm. And that's pretty much exactly what it's all about. And, 
when you start looking at some of the, you know, there was a great chapter um, uh, called The Hierarchy of Healing, The Therapeutic Order, which was actually written by Zeff Snyder and um, our own Stephen Myers here in Australia. Yeah. And they, they talk about the therapeutic order. And I know that um, naturopaths, uh, naturopathic and herbal students do get taught about it, but they just seem to forget so much about it. And and one of the things that really surprises me when you look at the therapeutic order um, so, so it, there's, there's seven different yeah, um, let's go categories, ahead. if you will, and and I think they're really worthwhile talking about, just because it, it ties in beautifully, I think, with what you were just highlighting. And and the first therapeutic order is establishing the conditions for health, you know, and and or removing obstacles to cure. So, establishing the conditions for health, looking at you know removing the the smoking, the alcohol, the the bad diets, all that type of stuff, because we we have to understand that if you don't change that. If you keep pumping in, uh, you know, poor petrol into a high-performance car, then you're not going to be maximizing the best out of it. Yeah. And, and I think that that's um, obviously one of the first things that most of us uh, look for and, and identify. But what surprises a lot of people, I think, is that the second therapeutic order is actually stimulating the self-healing mechanism, i.e. stimulating the, the vismeticatrix naturae, the healing power of nature. Um, and that's something that uh, I think Australian naturopaths particularly don't get a lot of training in because there's mm. a lot of different things that can come into that. I mean, that, that can be everything from spending more time in nature or, 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 you know, doing a little bit more hiking or doing more exercise outdoors oh, sleep, yeah. all the way through to, yeah, sleep yeah. And, and hydrotherapy and, and, and all sorts of, you know, um, sweat, you know, sweat lodge, whatever you want to uh, look about. But this is not um, anything to do with prescribing anything at this point. This is just stimulating the, our own self-healing mechanism. And then the third uh, therapeutic order, which is supporting weakened or damaged systems or organs. Now, this is where that concept of tonification comes in. You know, so supporting weakened or damaged systems. Again, are we talking about a disease yet? Not at all. So um, then you've got four, which is addressing structural integrity. And I think that that's where a lot of our body therapists uh, come in. So might have a slip disc. There's not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, establishing conditions for health or, or uh, supporting a weakened system there that's going to address something that needs to actually be um, corrected uh, from a structural integrity point of view. And it's not until we get to therapeutic order number five where we actually address specific pathology using specific natural substances, modalities, or interventions. And so this is where I get concerned because most naturopathic students that I've been watching, and, and uh, I don't supervise much uh, in, in clinic at the moment, but uh, you know, just from some of the more advanced uh, classes, they generally jump straight to therapeutic order number five. They're just going to sit there and say, well, they got inflammation, so we need to use anti-inflammatories, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas there's been, you know, not as much detail uh, applied to the first four therapeutic orders that were, I think, um, more important, uh, particularly supporting the weakened or damaged systems. Um, and that's, that's where, uh, in essence, so much... Uh, you know, that I find successful in clinical practice is just supporting weakened systems uh, using herbs for tonification and generally, uh, you know, also establishing those conditions for health, removing the obstacles to cure, and suddenly the body starts to ride itself back towards um, health. And, and you know, then you've got the, the sixth therapeutic order, which is actually addressing pathology using uh, specific pharmacology, so i.e. Um, modern medicines. And then seven is suppressed pathology, which could be, you know, surgery or, or uh, other, uh, I guess, more serious drugs. And and that's 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 
it in a nutshell, isn't mm, it? I mm. mean, we, that's how we practice. That's how we traditionally practice. But the reality is, is that um, with this shift towards the more evidence-based medicine and, and needing to be able to validate and, and show that our therapies work, we generally want to jump straight to five, and we, uh, in many instances, forget how important um, all of those are. And I think that the interesting thing about the therapeutic order is that it's actually um, categorized, I think, in order of importance. Right. You know, the, the, the establish the conditions for health. Absolutely. What's the point of giving something that's anti-inflammatory if they're not going to change their diet or mm. if they're not going to look at exercise? Uh, stimulating the self-healing mechanisms, supporting the weakened or damaged systems. Absolutely. We've got to do all of those things before we even start to, to, to look at addressing pathology because otherwise we're not going to maximize the benefit uh, that we could get from using any of the antis. You know? So when we look at addressing pathology, most, most practitioners would agree that you know, we're, we're using anti-this or anti-that, and, and that's kind of a, uh, what many people call a, a green allopathy, isn't it? Mm. And, and that's something I think we need to be very careful about uh, because if we continue to – and again, understanding that uh, I love science. Um, uh, you know, I think it's fantastic and, and uh, very, very important when it comes to moving our profession forward. But I think that we've, uh, when we look at balance, I think we have moved a fair way down into the into the uh, scientific side of things, and by so doing, uh, have uh, forgotten a lot of uh, the important natural philosophies, like we just talked about the therapeutic order. And and when you talk about, uh, you know, when you see a patient, um, and you can immediately tell. Um, at least I think after uh, a, a few years under your belt of clinical experience, if their vitality is strong or if their constitution is strong. You know, we don't even talk about constitution and things like that much anymore. Um, and this is, this is a shame, I think, because when science lets you down, um, as it invariably will uh, when you're treating a patient uh, or a patient's disease and you're not actually treating the patient, um, then if you don't have that really strong background of our own traditional philosophies to fall back on, um, then we're doing ourselves a disservice, not only as a profession, but as a practitioner, uh, because you're not maximizing uh, and bringing as much as much to the table therapeutically for your patient. At least that's uh, that's one of the things I've been thinking about a lot lately. So I have to ask the converse then, is that if you do this non-medically validated foundational type support for your patient, are you then doing non-evidence-based medicine and therefore a charlatan as, a, as seen in the eyes of modern medicine? I think that's a good question too. Um, but I think the reality is, is that does modern medicine really care about, um, you know, what, what was it uh, Mingan, I think, that said that, uh, you know, that's the thing about uh, complementary uh, medicine that works. It's just called medicine. medicine yeah. Um, and, and that's not entirely true at all. Um, I hope he was just taking a bit of a tongue-in-cheek uh, stab there because we've got all of this evidence already for St. John's Wort showing that it's uh, you know, as effective, if not better, with less side effects than most of the SSRIs are out there. The evidence has been out there for an overwhelming amount of time and has it changed prescribing uh, for the SSRIs. No, they've actually continued to go up. Mm. So we're doing all of this um, uh, research and providing a lot of this research, you know, Iberogast, there's all sorts of different products that are out there that show overwhelming scientific support, but it's still not actually being taken up by the medical profession. So that that driving motivation, I guess, where we talked about why were we doing this? We were doing this to get more acceptance and to get accept, you know, acceptability, particularly with our modern medical brethren. 
uh, so that they might see us and, and take us more seriously. Um, and so we have started providing this over the, the, the last you know decade and a half. And uh, where has it gotten us? Yeah. My question would be, uh, yes, there are doctors and particularly the integrative uh, medical practitioners that are taking this on board. They're listening. Um, but the reality is, is that it's not essentially changing medicine um, as you know we might want. And, and by so doing, uh, are we actually then creating to a degree a rod for our own back? If we start uh, you know, getting these large amounts of uh, evidence base uh, and doctors do start prescribing it, um, that's fantastic, uh, obviously, because patients will be able to get good outcomes from that. But then the reality is, is that it's not herbal anymore. Yeah. And, and we then, um, you know, and that's why I come back to that point where when we practice and if we start getting more evidence of practice uh, in evidence-based medicine, showing that the naturopathic practice of treating a certain condition, um, which involves the entire, uh, you know, the, the, the philosophies, the underpinnings, the, um, the examinations that we do in clinic, the discussions that we have in clinic as being as important as what we prescribe, then that, that data that we're going to get then is going to be a lot more meaningful uh, instead of just prescribing some type of herb and looking at how it goes through an RCT model. Um, I think that we, we absolutely need to focus on, on those kind of um, N of 1 in, in clinic studies because that, that then starts to become a part of that process because the practitioner is involved. It's not necessarily blinded. And while people can argue, of course, that, well, that's going to change things with bias and, and uh, all of that kind of stuff, I think that then starts the discussion about the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. And I think personally for me, I'm far more concerned that my patient is going to get better um, than I am worried about uh, whether that was to a statistical significance of you know, 0 0.05. Um, and, and that's where that... that uh, I guess that kind of uh, dilemma exists currently. This to me is very well covered in a, an old paper now, and it was sort of a tongue-in-cheek paper, but it had a very serious underlying message, and that was parachute use to prevent death and major trauma relating to gravitational challenge, a systematic yeah. review of randomised control trials. And it was by Gordon Smith and Jill Pell, P-E-L-L, -L, uh, in yeah. British Medical Journal 2003. We'll upload this onto the FX Medicine website. But basically what it says is if you want to um, survive a parachute jump, who wants to go into the placebo arm to look at that trial? And, Indeed. you know, and, and it's a tongue-in-cheek paper, but it's actually got a very serious underlying tone, and that is basically that the RCTs are great for looking at single interventions. Mm -hmm. They're not good for looking at a whole thing. And the problem is that when you try and meta-analyse um, things, let's say, for instance, probiotics, mm -hmm. how many probiotics have you got? What sort of doses? How are they prepared? What strains are you using of those probiotics, let alone species and genus, genera? Mm -hmm. um, then you can meta-analysis and get what you get, no effect. So a meta-analysis for probiotics is totally and utterly useless to get any meaningful data for one condition with one probiotic strain, species, even genera, um, at a certain dose. Whereas you have to tease apart those studies on that organism in that patient population. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think the other thing that comes to mind immediately is that everyone's individual microbiome is oh. different. Oh, yes. And, and, that's, and that, I think, is one of the big problems um, with RCTs, yeah. is that you can, you can randomize and put people into apparent you know, heterogeneous groups, but the reality is, is that everyone's cytochrome P450 system works differently, their gut works differently, yeah. and this is probably what is causing you know, the, the non-responders. Um, that come through in most of these trials. There are there are a certain percentage that will either be non-responders or will have adverse effects. And is that actually adverse effects uh, effects from the toxicology of the of the substance that's actually being trialed, or is it uh, a more a reflection of their own individual um, makeup? Yeah. And I think that this this is why again um, we need to be uh, moving forward with the with the N of one studies. I think that the uh, that kind of precision um, medicine is something that is going to be the future of healthcare, and it, and it can still be done in a very robust way. Uh, it can still be done to generate uh, statistically meaningful results, um, and that's that's something that fits beautifully, I think, in uh, with the philosophy of natural medicine and what we practice, uh, particularly in natu- you know naturopathic and, and herbal medicine, because then our philosophies, our traditions. Uh, the way that we take our case is actually uh, intertwined with what we're actually then going to be prescribing, and it becomes part of the therapy. And I think that that's far more meaningful um, for, for generating evidence to show what we do as a profession uh, in, in difference to what we just prescribe. Yeah. Um, and and that's, that's something that we've got to, I think, look, look at um, as we move forward as a profession, particularly uh, with the discussion of you know regulation and things like that. But looking at your pharmacy faculty training, um, when you looked at pharmacognosy and toxicology and the chemistry of various plants, um, you know, conversely to what we've been speaking, that's got very important data, if you like, for is a herb, at least with what you did there and certainly nutrients, is it of use to be looked at further? Correct? Yeah, absolutely. You're entirely correct. And that's the... I think the important aspect then, though, comes is that that's still a form of science that we need to look at. And, you know, when we look at something just as an example, like ephedra, you know, ephedra was taken from us because it has the high amounts of ephedrine and, and pseudoephedrine and that sympathomimetic activity. And um, obviously, the uh, Therapeutic Goods Administration at the time didn't think that uh, herbalists should be playing around with substances like that. Well, you had mainly athletes and, in the US abusing it. Yeah, well, I, I, I certainly think that that's. Uh, part of the reason why it was taken. But mm. I think the, the the question then lies is that did they actually look at how it was prescribed? Yes. Um, and, and and the reality is is that in traditional Chinese medicine, they boil ephedra for a, a sustained amount of time. Um, and it actually, you lose, because of that exposure to heat, mm. um, a substantial amount of, of the uh, alkaloids that are in question in there oh. and actually just get a measured dose. And so this is where dosage form and all those types of things and, yep. and the way that the herbs are prepared is also a very important discussion. Um, and, you know, just looking at something from a baseline toxicology point of view, yes, it could be quite dangerous. Uh, but when you actually then factor in the fact that your body might biotransform it in such a way that uh, its bioavailability is quite low, um, that that's that's very meaningful as well. And so, we can't just sit there and, 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 from a toxicological standpoint, say, well, this has got this certain substance in it and therefore it shouldn't be used um, because uh, we're not taking into account the 
uh, diversity, if you will, of, of, of how that might actually interplay with different dosage forms and then interplay with the human organism. And so I think it's a very um, diverse field uh, when we start looking at things like toxicology and analytical phytochemistry. And of course, they're very important for us to be able to manufacture high quality and, and, and efficacious products that can get sustained results. I want to be able to give a herbal product to a to a patient of mine, and I know that there are a certain amount of alkylamides in there, so that they're going to get reproducible results when I prescribe it every time, and that's certainly uh, very important. But I, I think our um, we need to take everything with a bit of a measured step uh, and understand that uh, back in the day, I mean, we've we've been practicing herbal medicine for tens of thousands of years, yeah. and um, oldest form of medicine on the planet. World Health Organization says that it's actually a primary form of medicine because 70% of the world's population relied on a primary as a primary source of medicine. And animals um, source out medicines. Oh, absolutely, Herbs. all the time. Yeah, all the time. And so when we start to um, consider that in its totality, um, science obviously has a very important uh, part to play there. But I also think that um, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the scientists that are doing the studies when it comes to herbal medicine actually have no training in herbal That's... medicine whatsoever. <laughs> and so, and this sets us up for failure to begin with. Yes. So we start looking at trials that have been conducted on echinacea that have only been done for three days when they could have been done for quite a bit uh, you know, longer. And, it, and 900 it, milligrams per day. Exactly. <laughs> Which is a totally <laughs> useless dose. Um, you, you can transfer that. You can keep going with that. Like even glucosamine, you know, one of the largest glucosamine trials used yeah. glucosamine hydrochloride. But interestingly, every single time it is quoted in that study, it never tells you that it's glucosamine hydrochloride. What they say mm -hmm. is glucosamine plus yeah. chondroitin sulfate. Yeah. So yeah. you and assume that, that or the non-thinking uh, practitioner, whether they be allopathic or natural, um, if they haven't read the study and they haven't looked at the actual product that was used, they would assume that it's glucosamine sulfate and chondroitin sulfate, whereas it's not. It's mm. glucosamine hydrochloride and chondroitin sulfate. And the product, I've used it, doesn't work. doesn't work very well at all. Yeah. And, and, and again, ta tailoring back to that discussion about um, we need the right people that are doing the, uh, the scientific studies. And, and, and I certainly encourage a lot of the the new graduates and students uh, as much as I can to, you know, if they do have an interest in science to pursue that because we absolutely need, yeah. um, you know, good naturopathic practitioners and herbalists going into the scientific field so that they can start generating some really good meaningful data uh, that we can use as a profession and, and indeed uh, modern medicine could potentially utilize uh, for the alleviation of symptomatology for their patients as well. And, and I mean, I guess that's just... Um, uh, it's all a suggestion of this changing knowledge base isn't yeah. it, when it comes to our herbal medicine and so much has changed. And I might just give a call out if I can to the, the wonderful Sue Evans. Um, yes. So Dr. Dr. Sue Evans, uh, she, she published this amazing paper actually in 2008 called the, the changing knowledge base of Western herbal medicine. So that's when she was um, still uh, lecturing over at uh, Southern Cross University. In Lismore. And the interesting, yeah, in Lismore. And she, she basically looked at um, articles that were specifically to do on herbal therapeutics in the Australian Journal of Medical Herbalism between the years 1989 and 2008. And she looked at, you know, all sorts of different things, but, but really focused on um, herbal treatment of specific conditions that were done by actual clinical herbalists, um, so written up. And I think she came across about 30 or 31 articles of herbal therapeutics that were found during that um, review. 
And the, and one of the really interesting things that um, she pointed out is that the herbalists that were publishing in the journal overwhelmingly used the language and concepts of biomedicine. So almost every article in the review includes, you know, the biomedical concepts. And, and that obviously indicates that the herbalist's understanding of illness is congruent with, with that of biomedicine. And, and that, again, ties in beautifully to what we were just talking about, that we're doing that so that we can show um, our understanding of the field. We, we, we practice differently, but we still have the core uh, teachings and underpinnings in, in anatomy and physiology and clinical pathology. But what, what was really interesting is that the review also looked at uh, the evidence-based uh, you know, clinical pla- uh, practice through those references. And interestingly, um, the, or the thing that I thought that was quite interesting is that a particular note was in the first five years of the journal's publication, um, there were nine references to vitalism, and there were about 11 references to herbal philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was no longer the case in the last five years. There were no references to vitalism or the vital force or our, our basic herbal uh, philosophical tenets uh, in the last five years of that. And that, again, supports, doesn't it, what we've been talking yeah. about, is that there's a, that drive or push uh, towards the more biomedical approach. And that was kind of one of the reasons, because I read Sue's article, uh, last year, and uh, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write up um, one of the case studies that I did on uh, a patient with acute pancreatitis, uh, and I completely treated that case um, literally with uh, the therapeutic order um, and and crude herbs. There was no standardized herbal medicines that were used whatsoever. I used herbal medicine as food and diet um, and just looked at building up the vitality of the patient, mm-hmm. even though all of my background in the discussion was you know, yes, we, got, we there were there were tests done, and their amylase was was elevated, and all of the the classic biomedical uh, terminology was used, but my treatment was completely the opposite. It was actually just traditional, um, and uh, that could be you know seen throughout that that discussion. And the only reason I did it is because I was practicing over in the United States at the time uh, because of a, a a colleague that was quite unwell, and I didn't have access to any of our uh, scientifically validated herbal medicines over there. And so I could fall back uh, on herbs as crude medicine, and I got outstanding results with it. And and that was one of those things where my friend, who's actually a um, uh, nurse practitioner over there, he said, I can't believe actually that you achieved um, the outcomes that you did just uh, practicing with those crude herbs the way you did. You really should write that up. Um, and so I did. Yeah. But but that's that point though is just you know if you don't have that knowledge base to begin with, or you 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 got trained in it but you forgot it, in an instance like that where I had no access to what I wanted, um, and alcohol indeed was completely contraindicated because that's what brought on the acute pancreatitis yeah. in that patient in the yeah. first place, then I just go back to crude herbs. Uh, and, uh, you know, decoctions and infusions and all of that and got, um, you know, just as good an outcome uh, as I was surprised with it, to be quite honest. So I just think that that's that, that, board, that, that baseline concept that we need to constantly have this discussion again about things like vital force, about things like the therapeutic order uh, in clinical discussion, because mm. there are times where it is completely appropriate um, to treat the patient like that. Uh, because you might not have, you know, there was no scientific literature that I found afterwards, really, um, that showed the use of herbal medicine for an acute medical condition like that. Um, And so this is just one of those things where going back to establishing the conditions for health and supporting or tonifying the weakened systems, 
that's what helped uh, alleviate a lot of that patient symptomatology. So I, I think as a, as a community of, of, of professionals, we need to move back. Um, and, and I don't I don't mean that um, we need to take large steps back, but we we need to seek balance in all things. And, yeah. and we're not balanced as a profession at this point. I think in our absolute driving love of of science. Um, for, to, to, to forget um, our, our philosophy. No, and no. I we think we need to come back. Yeah, we're not talking about um, practicing like a druid. What we're talking about is um, <laughs> embracing the past while embracing the future as well. But um, what you spoke about there, I mean, there was a few comments there which I just thought, oh, man, we could get into um, manufacture of, and I, I will pick on, if you like, or, in, or talk about um, herbal medicines in this instance, and that is... Um, mm-hmm. The manufacture of herbal medicines, should we indeed be looking at the, um, or indeed paying a lot more attention to the traditional way in which it was used, manufactured, i.e., specific example here is kava. Um, you spoke about ephedra. The second one is um, a, a point, and I'll give a shout out myself here to Dennis Stewart and Paul Keogh, two herbalists who saved me basically from the, the pit of only single standardization. Mm-hmm. which is too pharmacological for me now. Um, and that is uh, Dennis Stewart is famed for saying um, a good red wine is is not, um, what is it, is not chosen because of its level of resveratrol, mm. <laughs> you know. Mm. Um, and perhaps we need to look into multiple um, assays of chemical constituents rather than thinking that one thing is an, is an active yeah, and I think, I think that's a really good point. You, you know, the whole issue of standardization, I think, is an interesting one because so many people actually consider standardization to be, well, that's the only important active constituent, where actually, in many instances, nothing is further from the truth. Yeah. Um, it's, it's actually there as a quality assurance marker so that you can reproduce um, at or close to the same type of product. But it's only for that marker. That's exactly you right. You can bump and, up and everything else in there and, and or, or totally cock it up and mm-hmm. you still have that marker. You know, exactly. so it's just uh, yeah. it's fraught with so issues. When, and that goes all the way back to, I think, you know, the, the discussion about galenical preparations. And, and that's where I think, you know, getting, as many manufacturers do, uh, they get a broad type of spectrum, maybe a, a HPLC-MS type of uh, fingerprint of mm. what's going on there. And, yep. and yes, we just decide that we're going to standardize to this. But for their own in-house quality assurance, uh, many of the, the other phytochemicals do need to be within certain uh, parameters. The, the only difference is, is that they're not needing to claim it on their label because they're not actually declaring it uh, on the label. So um, that's, that forms part of their own in-house QA. Mm. Uh, but as soon as you sit there and say, well, I need to standardize the alkalinides or I need to standardize the elucicide or whatever, then suddenly that needs to be every single time part of their own quality uh, assurance checking. And I completely agree with you. I think that's uh, uh, absolutely uh, important because that doesn't mean that, you know, as herbalists, the naturopaths, we're allowed to extemporaneously manufacture. Um, And and that's something that most people feel too scared to do uh, because they they move away from that uh, concept of standardization. But I would argue that if you've grown a herbal medicine organically uh, in your own backyard um, and harvested it, you can you can get a, a wide spectrum of phytochemicals that can be there and the medic- medicine can still be very, very therapeutic. Um, it, you just wouldn't know what those markers were unless you sent it away for testing. And I, um, you know, that, that is something that if someone wanted to do, you can uh, easily send products off to uh, 
Southern Cross University and make an assay it for, for those types of things mm. if it was something that you were really interested in. And, and getting back to your previous point about things like Carver, I think this is really important, Andrew, because you know, in, in many instances, we see manufacturers bringing herbal medicines over from other paradigms, whether that be Ayurveda or it might be traditional Chinese medicine. And then we try and incorporate it into a Western herbal framework, which generally utilizes, of course, our uh, ethanol and water as a solvent. Mm. Um, and that may not be how it's uh, been utilized at all. Yeah. And, uh, again, the, the, the classic example there is kava. Yep, it's, it's, it's aqueous extraction uh, only, and that's exactly where we are yeah, now. Yeah, TCM with mild um, wine. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that's something that we do need to pay a lot of uh, attention to is how was it actually utilized in its uh, traditional form mm. and therefore dictate whether it's actually appropriate that we utilize ethanol and water or, or different types of solvent extraction uh, when most of the evidence, if the evidence is based on aqueous, then you can't, ex well, you shouldn't extrapolate ah. if you've then um, if you've then manufactured it with water and, and ethanol. You can't really extrapolate based on the evidence if it's been done on a previous aqueous study. So I think we need to compare apples and oranges, uh, yeah. apples with apples and all things, and not apples and oranges. But this gets down, I think, to the expertise of the naturopathic and herbal profession versus the allopathic medicine profession, um, and I think. You know, naturopaths and herbalists have a lot to offer. I'm going to remember something that was told to me, and I haven't spoken to this lady about it, but um, Isla Burgess and Dr. Nikki Bailey. Um, Isla Burgess was attributed with taking her herbal medicine students in, this is in New Zealand. They would be able to identify a herb from sprout to picking. They would be able to identify that herb through its whole life cycle. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a true champion of herbal medicine there. Um, that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, and I haven't seen its like since. Well, that's a, that's a really good point. And I think, you know, when we start looking at the teaching curriculums of a lot of the um, bachelor degrees that currently exist in Australia, uh, particularly when, when we start looking at botany, I mean, botany is something that's been a, a love of mine most of my life. That was, uh, you know, I studied my first degree that I didn't complete was a Bachelor of Science in Forestry, and, and I did... Uh, all of that botany and dendrology and, and absolutely fall in love with it. But we, you know, it's wonderful that we've got, say here in Sydney, we've got the botanical garden. So you can take students down there and they can see the herbs in situ, uh, you know, in the ground, what they look like. Um, but that kind of level of detail that you described, you know, from, from sprouted seedling all the way through to um, uh, cultivating it and finished product is just a completely different level of education. And And I think that the, what we, what we essentially are training, um, unfortunately, and, and I guess regrettably, is, uh, you know, a, a, a collection of brown bottle herbalists. Mm, that's um, right. And that's something that I know in my training, um, particularly having traveled around the world and, and had, had the distinct privilege to spend time with different um, cultures learning about how they use herbal medicine, that became a very, very important aspect for me. And so, you know, I've, I've grown herbal medicines for, for most of my adult career. Uh, I think that that's, a, that's still a very important part. I love to prescribe crude herbal medicines, uh, whether that's as decoctions or infusions or, or whatever the case might be. Love making up creams and doing things extemporaneously. And I try to encourage students to, to fall in love with that because mm. um, I guess when push comes to shove is that the reality is, is that I could take most students out um, to a, a herb farm 
uh, and they would not really know what they're looking at, mm. and, and that's that's a shame. I think Me because we are, yeah, we're losing we're losing touch with the medicine that we actually prescribe, and and that's not to say that the standardisation and using um, the products that are supplied to us is a bad thing at all. I think it's an abs- it's absolutely a good thing. Um, but the reality is, you know, in, in, in clinical practice today, not many people have time to yeah. grow their own and manufacture and do all that kind of stuff. So I, I absolutely uh, agree. And, and obviously where I practice and, and have practiced in the past, it's always been with um, uh, standardized extracts. But I guess the reality is, is that if you don't lose a skill, then you lose it altogether. Yeah. Um, and that's that's something I think we need to be concerned about, and we need to encourage utilizing crude herbal medicines, I think, not only at the uh, bachelor level and in the educational level, but actually at a professional level. Mm. Um, and I know that there are a lot of... Uh, you know, old school herbalists out there, you know, Rob Santich and others that, that hold workshops uh, on how to manufacture and, and wildcrafting. And I think we need to uh, embrace that and, and really encourage the profession to, to take that on board again. Yeah, I, I mean, I was going to make a point along that sort of line. I'd, I'd make a call out to all of the naturopathic colleges to rather than history and philosophy of natural medicine being based on a boring textbook, it should be field trips and learning about the actual true grit of the um of the history of the profession, um, mm. and you know I'm not saying to be, forgive me. I have a certain bent, and somebody's going to mm-hmm. take umbrage to this, but I'm not saying to be sort of weird druid crystal waving sort of things. I'm safe medicine or safe natural medicine, obviously always, um, mm-hmm. but um, we've got to regrasp the the beginnings as as well mm. as moving forward to validate the safe use of that. Yeah, and and you're absolutely right. I mean, from a from a traditional point of view, because ethnopharmacology is also a love of mine, and, and, and that's um, our understanding, and this is something I think that a lot of people maybe don't realize, is that our understanding of our ancestors' ancestors' footprint on this planet is actually woefully ignorant. Um, that our, our archaeological understanding of, of human beings' footprint on this planet is, is very, very short of, of where I think it actually yeah. exists. Um, and when we start going back and looking at herbal medicine, so, okay, 4000 BC, we've got uh, documented evidence of, of, of discussions in China and, and obviously something similar, of course, for Ayurveda. This is just written history. Mm. That, doesn't, that doesn't include the spoken word. That doesn't include what's been passed down from master to apprentice over you know, thousands of years. And, and when we start to look at what we consider the height of civilization um, and, and looking at powerhouses like Egypt and China and India... Um, this is something that really blew me away. But when we start looking at um, recent archaeological findings, um, they've, they've actually just unearthed a Oopsie. structure over in Turkey uh, oh. at a place called Gebekli Tepe. And it's, it's a huge uh, uh, monumental um, monolithic structure that actually goes down several levels. And it appears that it was actually intentionally buried. But they, they were able to get very, very good carbon dating uh, because it was a buried site. And this was actually um, carbon dated to about 12,000 years ago. Now, according to what we currently have been told, um, we were hunter-gatherers then. Uh, we, we were just exploring into the Neolithic period and starting to cultivate things as a, as a group community. Wow. Um, and suddenly we're getting this evidence that there was a advanced monolithic structure that was created at Quebecli Tepe. And, and further from that, which I think even more surprising, is that they've just unearthed, um, well, not just, uh, I think about uh, seven or eight years ago, 
another temple complex over in Indonesia at a place called Gunam Padang. Um, And this, again, was buried. And uh, archaeologists have gone there and and taken samples. And this has been carbon dated to 20,000 years ago. So I think this whole idea of, of, you know, well, herbal medicine's only really been validated, used uh, for, for this period of time. Um, as we start to learn more about our ancestors' footprint on this planet, I think it's far more likely that herbal medicines have been used for a far deal. Well, uh, far since we were hominids, since we were apes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And just because we can't prove something because of writing, etc., I mean, they, they, they did, uh, and, and this has been proven, there was that uh, burial site that was found over in uh, Mesopotamia or modern-day Iraq. I think it was of Shanadar Four, where they... They found a buried um, hominid uh, that um, had seven different herbal medicines that were buried with them, and that was identified from the pollen, uh, the protein uh, uh, within the pollen. And those herbal medicines still grow there today. Utsi, and, and that Utsi, was Utsi, the buried ice man. Um, you yeah, know, the, I mean, he he had um, um, certain herbs, I think, on his. Absolutely, his and so I think that that going back, you know, it's not just about our written history. Um, and when we start looking at cultures like our own in, uh, uh, indigenous Aboriginals in Australia, mm-hmm. um, how much of our knowledge is being lost because oh, yeah. they didn't write that down, you know? And and there's there if you want to talk about a great area for for new graduates to go into, good lord, isn't that one? Just get out there and start uh, assisting uh, these elders, uh, uh, collating and collecting this information so that it's not lost forever. Because um, that I think is the greatest tragedy is that when we start looking at not only the the loss of knowledge. Um, that come from these uh, from these elders uh, from different cultures all around the world. But but um, you know as we've talked about before, I think being a, a natural medicine practitioner, herbalist, and naturopath, that we are intrinsically linked with our environment. And uh, you know we're losing rainforest uh, at just uh, you know huge uh, huge amounts, so they can plant bloody soya farms, so that they can feed soya to cows. Yeah. And, you know uh, and, and, and salmon palm oil and. <laughs> Oh God! And it's just you know how many how many um, cures, how many new medicines um, are we losing that are out there in the in the collective uh, environments around the world? So I think it's you know it's it's a far bigger discussion than um, than 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 what we started out with, of course. But the reality is is that that is our philosophy, that is our history, that is our tradition, and all of those are meaningful. Um, it's not just about you know what we've been able to discuss from books like Gerard and and uh, Avicenna and and all of these and we we talk about all of these as if they're they're somehow different and and that's that's again a little bit of a misnomer because when you start to understand that traditional Chinese medicine utilized certain herbs and understand the Silk Road and that that would have been shared with people in India and and Ayurvedic system and then they would have continued to travel and share that with uh, people that were in Alexandria, and then that knowledge would have been written down and kept in the library of Alexandria, and then when it was sacked, um, you know, that knowledge would have been mm. taken by Islamic scholars, yeah. and those Islamic scholars would have then, when they moved into uh, Moorish Spain, they took all of that information yeah. with them. So we somehow sit there and talk about, you know, Western herbal medicine as being so far different to um, all of these other different types of medicine. But when you actually look at our roots, even though we might use different philosophical underpinnings and, and terminology, um, the, the actual base medicines have been shared across many different um, uh, cultural paradigms. And and I think, uh, I, I don't necessarily think that herbal medicines belong in a certain cultural paradigm. They belong to all of us. 
um, they belong to the human, the, the, the you know, the, the human being, and and it's not uh, just something. Well, it's only a TCM herb, or it's just an Ayurvedic herb. Uh, it's a herb that can uh, alleviate suffering, as far as I'm concerned. And I think uh, all of us should be, uh, you know, learning about, uh, particularly in the in the traditional aspects of our applications of herbs. Um, go back to those uh, old texts because you just there's there's clinical pearls right throughout. Uh, looking at uh, prescribing some of these herbs that don't get a lot uh, of, of uh, say these days. I mean, when I studied back in the day, um, and we utilized a book like the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, um, most of those herbs that we covered aren't really covered uh, in in a lot of the Materia Medica uh, and discussions uh, anymore because they don't have a lot of scientific evidence behind them. But that doesn't mean that herbs like agrimony. Uh, are not fantastic to use, you know, and and uh, centauri, um, you know, uh, centauri, uh, um, the, the the old uh, aromatic, and 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 all of those herbs that we've kind of long forgotten, just because we've only got traditional evidence for them, does not mean they don't work. Mm. Um, and again, trying to uh, you know push uh, more uh, researchers to actually start looking at the, the the herbs that we don't have huge evidence bases for. Um, and uh, and start to grow that because uh, most of the the herbs that we see that are you know in our monographs these days they've had lots of studies on them but what about the herbs that we've used for centuries that have been very very valid and used from everyone from Avicenna through to Galen um, but just because uh, they don't have any scientific evidence behind them that we don't uh, use them clinically they've fallen out of clinical favor and I can assure you that I've, I've used a lot of those herbs. Uh, clinically and uh, and get you know still some very interesting therapeutic outcomes. So it's uh, it's such a huge discussion this this philosophy because it, it it underpins so many different areas of our profession. And it's not just about an education or about a viewpoint or or a um, you know a philosophical viewpoint. Of course, you're allowed if you if you love science, then you're allowed to practice that way. Um, I just think, uh, you know, particularly speaking from my perspective, is that we need balance in all things. Mm. Balance is actually one of the underlying philosophies of what we study. Um, So if we don't actually utilize that uh, with not only our herbal medicines, but the philosophies with which we treat our patients, I think we lose so much and uh, we are at risk of losing our identity. Justin, you continually and continuously impress me with not just your ethnobotany, not just your pharmacognosy, not just your toxicology knowledge, but the way in which you bring it back to a level of compassion treating humanity. And I truly, truly honour you, mate. You're an amazing human being, an amazing practitioner. Thanks so much for joining us on FX Medicine, mate. It's always a pleasure, mate. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is FX Medicine, and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.